I thought there was something wrong with me. Why can't I be like other people? Why, why don't I feel things? Why don't I see things the way other people do? You're listening to the Courageous Content Podcast. I'm Janet Murray, and I love helping coaches, creatives, and entrepreneurs create super engaging content that generates leads and sales for their businesses. No one starts a business and just knows how to create engaging content. It's a skill that has to be learned and practiced. And there's always something new to learn, no matter how long you've been in business. And I know running an online business can feel messy. Perfectionism, fear, self-doubt, and other mindset stuff can stop you showing up online in the way that's best for you. So you'll get help with that too. Ready to get courageous with your content? Let's get started. Being a courageous content creator is about showing up consistently, even when you don't have it all figured out. It's about being vulnerable and not trying to pretend that you're brilliant at everything and everything in your life or business is perfect. And it's also about being brave enough to do less, to post less on social media, to create less content, to make every piece of content go further, to repurpose your content, to post the same piece of content on different platforms, even on the same day or at the same time, and not feel like you have to be reinventing the wheel all the time. Hands up, I find the last one quite hard, particularly as a content expert, because I feel like I have to be showing up all the time with new and original content, because that's my thing. But when you really think about it, that's about people pleasing, about wanting to avoid criticism or judgment or people not liking you. So it's something I'm very conscious of and a way of thinking I try to avoid. So when I looked at my content schedule for October and I saw it was ADHD Awareness Month, I decided to be brave and republish a podcast episode I made last year about how I discovered that I had ADHD and why I think it's my secret superpower. I listened back to it. I think it's still relevant and helpful. And I'm going to pop back at the end with an update. Earlier this month, so that's June 2020, if you're listening in the future, I was diagnosed with ADHD at the grand old age of 45. So if you haven't heard of ADHD before, it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And it's a disorder that affects the functioning of the brain, includes symptoms such as inattentiveness, hyperactivity and impulsiveness. Now, I found this actually quite difficult to talk about. And even though I suspected that I had it, even though I'd done all the research for about two weeks after getting the official diagnosis, I just couldn't talk about it. I just couldn't, the words just wouldn't come out. And then about a fortnight later, I was brave enough to share it with my team on a daily team meeting. I don't know what happened. It just kind of came out and I just said it. And after that, I felt comfortable, I think, to start talking about it. So I shared a post on my Facebook page. I also shared a post on LinkedIn and also on Instagram. And I was just really overwhelmed by the responses. And in particular, the messages and the responses that I got from women who said, oh my God, that actually sounds familiar. That that sounds like it could be me. So I thought it might be useful to record a dedicated podcast episode so I can go into a little bit more detail than I did on those posts. So I'm going to start by talking about my symptoms and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about how they showed up in different decades of my life. And I hope it will be helpful If you've been thinking that maybe this is something that's affecting you or somebody in your life, or maybe you're just 
those that you're interested, you just want to know more about it. Like, I hope that this will give you a greater insight into ADHD. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, maybe more of an insight into me as the host. And perhaps if you're a friend or a colleague, it might also help you to understand me a little bit better. So before we get into the content, I think I ought to start by saying this. By the time you get to the end of this episode, or probably part way through, there's a good chance you'll be thinking one of three things. So number one, but I do these things too. Number two, but you don't seem to be the slightest bit hyperactive, Janet. And number three, ADHD isn't real. It's just your personality type. So just to put it into context, so yes, we all do some of the things that I share with you in this episode. What really makes the difference when it comes to ADHD is the frequency with which the symptoms occur and also the extent to which it affects your life. And I think it's also worth mentioning that ADHD shows up very differently in different people. So if you speak to 10 different people with ADHD, they will all describe a slightly different set of symptoms or actually could be quite radically different. It also shows up differently in girls and women in particular, which is why it often gets missed, in fact. And just to give you an example, the hyperactivity. So I worked in schools, I was a teacher before, and I kind of associated ADHD with boys, like bouncing around the classroom. I've worked with tons of kids with ADHD. I never imagined that it was something that could affect me. But actually, that physical restlessness that we, that we often associate with ADHD, it can show up as mental restlessness. And that is exactly the case for me. It, it's like I'm not physically moving or bouncing around, but that's happening in my head. And as I've discovered, that's down to ADHD. I think the other thing to point out is that it can affect, well, it does often affect people who don't achieve well educationally or professionally it can also show up in extremely high achievers. In fact, one of the symptoms is hyperfocus, which is this ability to absolutely just kind of focus in on one thing and, and block everything else out, which is actually, if you think about it, is a bit of a superpower. And I would definitely say that that's something which has helped me to achieve some of the things that I've achieved in my life is this ability to just kind of completely focus and almost get obsessive about one particular thing, which I do all the time. And that obviously can be a superpower. So a lot of the things that I've struggled with during my lifetime have also been things that have helped me to do really well. So I'm going to start by sharing a list of my symptoms. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about how I now realise that I was affected at different decades in my life. But I just thought these were kind of personality flaws. And, and to be honest, I thought there was something wrong with me. Why can't I be like other people? Why, why don't I feel things? Why don't I see things the way other people do? And this has all kind of been going on internally through the whole of my life. So it's been quite a relief, really. Like one of my friends said to me when I was saying that I was considering getting tested, he was like, well, what difference will it make? Well, you know, first of all, it means I can potentially seek some treatment. But secondly, I hope it will help me to understand myself better and to change my behaviour, hopefully just understanding it a little bit better. But maybe I could stop beating myself up a little bit so much. So I'm going to start with that list of symptoms. And when I say symptoms, this is a list of basically things that I've been thinking about myself for the whole of my life, which I now realise are symptoms of ADHD. So I'm just going to go through that list now. How can I be such a high achiever at things I find interesting, but suck so badly at things that I don't? which is really apparent in my school reports. Why am I so bad at life stuff? 
like paying bills, booking or cancelling appointments, buying birthday presents, ordering groceries, cooking. Like, why am I just so bad at that stuff? And why do I get fines all the time for forgetting to pay things? Why do I get so excited about new things, then struggle to finish them? Why am I so bad at friendship? Why am I so bad at remembering friends' birthdays, sending baby gifts, asking after people when they're sick, turning up to social things, or maybe not bad, but just kind of inconsistent? Why am I such an impulsive spender, but never seem to learn from my mistakes? Why am I so brilliant with words, but frequently get muddled up with numbers and dates? Why do I leave everything to the last minute? In fact, why does leaving it to the last minute often feel like the only way to get it done? Why do I struggle so much with detail to the point where starting a project with lots of moving parts or instructions actually feels physically painful? Why can't I hold down a job or even stick working in an office with other people for more than a few weeks at a time? Why do I get so bored of everything so quickly? Meetings, relationships, social events, small talk, projects. Why do I sometimes make such impulsive decisions? Decisions that can blow up relationships, friendship, work, family, often on a complete whim. Why am I so damn sensitive? To the point where a crossword or a brush off from a colleague or a friend can put me in a dark place for weeks on end. Why am I such a compulsive workaholic? Why do I work longer hours than anyone else I know, often to achieve the same results or maybe even not as good as other people? Why don't I enjoy holidays? days off like other people seem to? Why do I just seem to want to work all the time? Why can't I switch my damn brain off? So these are all things that I struggle with for pretty much all of my life. And I just thought they were personality flaws or quirks of personalities. I now realise that these are symptoms of ADHD. There's a lot of symptoms that I haven't covered there, which don't apply to me. But those main ones about struggling to pay attention, lack of focus, being impulsive, being disorganized, being bad with numbers and dates and forgetting things, having problems with my memory. They're all things that I just kind of accepted as part of my personality. And I think the reason I accepted them as part of my personality and didn't question that at all was because I was such a high achiever in some areas, which I'll, when I give you more of an insight into my life and history, you might be able to kind of understand that part a little bit better. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while or you've worked with me or maybe your friend that's listening to this, you might be surprised by that because, or what I've just shared, because I think I come across as pretty calm. I don't pace the floor. I don't generally interrupt people when they're speaking, which is a common ADHD symptom. I don't talk incessantly, well, I do sometimes, but I don't think it's particularly problematic. I'm also quite socially self-aware. I'm quite emotionally intelligent, I think. So I don't have some of those stereotypical symptoms of ADHD. The only thing you might have noticed, and you might have even noticed this as a podcast listener, is that sometimes I talk a little bit fast. And if I get excited about something, I've done podcast interviews and other people's podcasts, for example, where I've talked so fast afterwards, I can't believe that I did that. But I certainly haven't been bouncing off the walls. And I should also add here, if you've ever worked with me, you know, I think really fast. So when I'm giving instructions, I'll often start halfway through because I think I've already given the first part of it. <laughs> but I certainly wasn't bouncing off the walls as a child or a teenager. I don't do it now. I didn't have any reason to believe that any of these things I've just described were anything more than personality quirks, even though they felt heavy at times. It felt difficult to realise, you know, to cope with some of those things. I'd say actually relationships is one of the areas where I've struggled the most. I love people. But I've always found 
navigating the unwritten rules of friendship and in particular female friendship really, really hard. And I've spent most of my life beating myself up about not having enough close female friends or not really having many. I've got a couple of really close friends, but they tend to be uh, quite career orientated entrepreneurs like me or, or certainly very high achievers. And they're quite low maintenance. I've always found, I mean, I've been dropped over the years. I've been dropped from so many female friendship groups, or certainly it's felt that way because I've never really wanted to toe the line. So I can remember when I was at school and the girls were going off for holiday after A-levels, I didn't want to go. And I, I don't know why, I just, I just didn't want to go. There would be nights out or social things that people would invite me to. And for whatever reason, I just didn't want to go. And because I kind of wanted to pick and choose, I think I was always worried about getting bored. I think I, I worried if I went on holiday and I didn't like it and I'd be bored and I want to come home or if I went on a night out and we were somewhere and I decided I didn't like it, I wouldn't be able to, to get away. And after a while, when you, you start to say no to things or you, you kind of pick and choose about what you're doing, people start to stop asking you. And, and that's certainly felt like my experience over the years. For me, like being part of a female friendship group, there's a lot of things that you have to do. I think, to kind of stay part of that group. And that often involves, you know, doing stuff that you don't like, maybe going to events or going around to people's houses and doing things that you find boring or whatever. And I've just never been able to do that. So as a result, I think I've been dropped quite a lot over the years by friends because maybe I haven't, or maybe I've forgotten their birthday or I've forgotten to ask after them after an important thing. And I think obviously those kind of things really matter to women. So I've tended to have, stick to quite, a, I've got loads of acquaintances, I'm really sociable. But in terms of really close friends that I could turn to in tough times, I've only got a very small handful and I tend to make friends with men because I think men are, they're much easier to deal with. They're not likely to get offended if you forget their birthday or you forget to follow up with them or you don't answer their text or whatever. And I've had countless conversations with my mum over the years about this and beat myself up about it. Like, why can't I be a better friend? Like, why do I always mess up? And now I kind of realise that there was a reason for that. So I'm going to talk now about the different decades in my life and some of the ways that some of these symptoms did actually show up quite early on, but I didn't necessarily recognize them as symptoms. Now, if you look at a lot of ADHD tests, they say that the symptoms have to be present from the time that you're a child, but actually, particularly in women, they often don't show up or certainly from what I've read, the symptoms don't really start to show up until the kind of teenage years. And I think that might partly be because of some of the kind of social pressures that, that girls are put under to you know, be good girls and to do the right things. And girls tend to kind of get their, their heads down and just kind of get on with it. And I think when you get to the teenage years, as I think probably started to happen to me, is that things begin to unravel a little bit. So I was a pretty good kid. So when I shared this diagnosis with my parents, I think initially they were a bit upset and a bit surprised because the first thing they said was, but you were such a good kid. And without going into too much detail, I, I could probably add here that I have a sibling who was you know, quite hyperactive. So was was kind of got into trouble quite a lot of school, very, very bright, really academically bright, but there was always some kind of trouble or something that he was involved in. So I was like the good kid and the quiet kid. And I did well at primary school and all my reports, apart from sort of there's a few comments about me being a bit messy and my handwriting being messy and sometimes rushing artwork and things like that. But they're pretty good all round in, in most subjects. But I can really remember having this nagging sense, even from really young, that I was much cleverer than people gave me credit for. And I was always kind of on the, the sort of 
top table, but I always felt like the teacher thought that some of the other kids were cleverer than me. And I remember just having this kind of, this internal thing where I was kind of like, you're always picking those people out, but I'm just as clever as them. And it's, it's weird now that I can really remember that. I had a horrible year when I was at primary school. So that would have been when I was between nine and 10, I think. And I was really bullied for a whole year of school to the, to the whole to the point where I didn't want to go to school and only that my mum was sort of strict and in those days you, you couldn't you didn't kind of do school refusing I did go to school but it was really tough and I never wanted to eat in the morning and I was always looking for excuses and saying that I was sick and when I say bullying I kind of mean the kind of exclusion bullying that girls do to each other so I would go to school every day there was one girl who was a ringleader and I would never know whether I was in or out so some days people would be nice to me and talk to me and then other days I would be completely isolated and this went on for a whole year. And I remember when I was having my assessment with the um, psychotherapist about ADHD, she asked me why I thought I got bullied. And I said, well, the reason I got bullied was because I cried really, really easily. Like literally somebody could say anything to me and I would burst into tears. And I used to have this book that I used to read over and over again. It was an old annual. My dad, my mom and dad didn't have much money when I was growing up. And my dad used to buy me loads of books, but he used to buy them all from like jumble sales and secondhand shops. And so I had like the Mandy annual from 1975 in 1985. But I had this annual that had an article in it about how to stop yourself crying. And I used to read this article over and over again. And I remember thinking, if there was one thing that I could wish for in life, it would be not to cry so easily because I was just so, so sensitive. And there were a few comments on my report about that, about being a bit sensitive and being a bit serious. And my family used to say to me all the time, like, oh, you're so sensitive. You, used to, you need to stop being so sensitive. But it was really interesting when the, the psychotherapist asked me, why did you get bullied? I said, it's because I cried all the time. I was an easy target. So I had to learn and I really had to work really hard on this not to cry. Like, because you can't survive at school if you're crying all the time. You're just not going to survive. So I had to learn to get really hard. And I think sometimes people see me as having a bit of a hard shell. And it's because I had to learn to do it because deep down, I am so sensitive. And slightest word or the slightest, slightest criticism from somebody can really knock me. Now, when I got my diagnosis as well, the doctor said that I also showed signs of rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria. And if you haven't heard of that, it's an extreme emotional sensitivity. And it to the point where somebody actually feels physical pain when they're rejected or criticised. And it often goes hand in hand with ADHD. And when she gave me the diagnosis, she said, I think you've got that too. So that was really the only thing that showed up towards the end of primary school. I started to struggle a bit with maths. I'd always been like a really good all-rounder. I enjoyed maths. I enjoyed all of my subjects, particularly English. Quite early on, it says on my reports that I, I showed real flair for writing and I was a, a really good reader. I remember I'd read all the books. My mum went and got me like a, an adult library card when I was about 10 because I'd read all the books in the library and all the teen books as well. And she went and got special permission to get me an adult library card so I could read more books. But I started to struggle with maths and I remember getting sent down to the remedial class in maths. I was just so humiliated and it might just be a UK thing, but any child that had learning difficulties at the time, they used to call it remedial. So I got sent down to this remedial class because I was struggling. I remember it was decimal points. I was struggling with decimal points for some reason. Got sent to this class. The remedial teacher just took one look at me and sent me back to class and nothing ever really happened as a result of that. My teacher just went, okay. But from that point on, I really started to struggle with maths and started to go downhill. And that's a really common ADHD symptom. 
I was quite untidy as a child, but I think it didn't really start to show up until my teenage years. So I got to secondary school and pretty early on, I started to lose interest in most subjects. The only subjects I was really interested in, this is really evident from my reports, three subjects, English, music and history. And if you look at my report, for example, and I had to show reports, actually, when I had my assessment done, I had to dig out all my school reports. If you look at my report from when I was about 13 or 14, it's almost kind of funny because English, history, music, A grade, outstanding, brilliant progress. Every single other subject says, doesn't pay attention, not interested, underachieving, could do so much better. It's almost like reading a report for a different person. And to put it into context, I went on to get, I was an A-grade student at A-level. Um, I got a really good degree. I've gone on to, to be quite a high achiever. If you look at my school report, you would never guess that because in every other subject, apart from English, music and history, that average to below, to below average, really, I just, I just wasn't interested. I really started to struggle with maths at that point. I'd already started to struggle, but then really, really went downhill and continued to struggle. I only just really scraped a pass at maths and that was with a tutor. And I, I always felt quite alone and isolated. I had this group of friends from primary school and they were just really close-knit. They'd all been friends since, since they were younger. I'd actually moved. I, I was born in Liverpool in the north of England and moved to Kent when I was about six. So by that time, a lot of people had established their friendships. But I had this group of friends at secondary school and I was kind of so envious because they'd all known each other since they were young and they just seemed so close and they really looked out for each other. And I, I always felt like I was the third person or the fourth person. And I really felt at the time I struggled to fit in at secondary school. So my kind of, um, I bucked myself up a little bit when I was about 14 or 15, heading towards GCSEs. But I remember in my mocks, I got five A grades and for E grades. <laughs> and so that was how different my performance was. Um, in my real GCSEs, I got, I think I got four A grades and five C grades. I just scraped through in the other subjects because I just wasn't interested. I wasn't interested in physics. I wasn't interested in chemistry. I wasn't interested in, I wasn't interested in anything that wasn't English or history or music. But then something interesting happened. I wanted to do music A-level, so I, I had to change schools. So I had to go to a selective girls grammar school. And that was really interesting because nobody knew me before and nobody knew what I'd done before at my comprehensive school. And suddenly, because I was doing subjects that I really liked, I was like top of the class in everything. And I remember my former tutor saying to me, she asked me whether I was going to apply to Oxford or Cambridge. And I just laughed because I was just like, you know, people like me don't go to Oxford or Cambridge. I was like, working class family, first person to go to university. But I realize now is that it was a perfectly sensible question she was asking me because I was predicted all A grades. I, on paper, I looked like I was, you know, the ideal person to apply. But of course, she didn't know me before. She didn't know that I'd got all these really poor grades in all the other subjects. And what was interesting to me is I wasn't just sort of A grade. Whenever we got an essay back, I always got the top mark out of everybody in the class. So I was kind of outperforming my peers in a selective grammar school in those subjects. But had it been in other subjects, I would have been like bottom of the class. You know, they would have made me drop the subject. So it just seemed so extreme. I was going to study music. I grew up wanting to be a musician and I decided on a whim <laughs> that I wasn't going to study music. I had a place to study music at King's College in London and I struggled with the theory of music. So I was a good musician. I really did struggle with the theory side of it because it's very mathematical and 
not only did I find it hard, but I just found it really boring. And I just wanted to play. And I love playing and I love singing. And I didn't want to sit there and kind of work out the intervals between notes. I didn't want to sit there and harmonize Bach, Raz. It just all seemed so boring. And I think I kind of on some level kind of recognized this. And then I had this incident where I was, I was playing in a big concert. I'd been picked out to play a solo. I always got picked out to do the solos because although I wasn't brilliant at theory, I was, I was very musical and a good performer. And this girl came up to me and she said to me, I should have got to do that because I'm better than you. And to be fair, she was better than me. But in that split second, that one moment that made me decide that I wasn't going to go to study music. So I decided to reject my place when it came through. And I decided to go off and see if I could get a place in an English degree instead. University, I have to say, I didn't really enjoy it at all. Since I know that a lot of people with ADHD struggle with transitions, I just found university boring. So I did an English degree. English was my favorite subject at school. But I found that the broadness of doing an English degree was just, it was just too broad for me. And I was doing things like translating Chaucer and Old English and and it was boring and it was hard and I didn't have many lectures and I didn't feel that I made the connections at university. Like everybody said it was going to be so much fun. I made loads of really great friends when I was in sixth form. I had a really great time, but everybody said it's going to be fun. You, you make your friends for life. But I was actually quite lonely a lot of the time I was at university and I actually almost had a really bad car accident at the end of my second year of university. And for some bizarre reason, I decided in my third year that I was going to drop out. <laughs> and uh, luckily, my tutors kind of managed to, they, they sort of talked me around and I, I stuck with it. And actually, I probably enjoyed maybe one or two terms of English. And that was because I got, got to uh, study the books that I wanted to study. And I got to write dissertations. I got to focus on my interest, which is a very kind of ADHD thing, I, I now realise. University, I did find it quite socially awkward. I realise now that I don't like crowded places and I don't like socialising with too many people at once. I just find it overwhelming. Even when I run an event now, even if I run one of my big events, I find it really difficult. Like I have no problem getting up on stage and talking in front of people, but the actual small talk, I sometimes walk into the room at the start of an event and there's so many people there, I want to walk back out again because I just find it so overwhelming and all the kind of small talk and the chatter and I can do it. And it probably looks effortless on the surface, but it isn't effortless underneath. It's, it's, it's kind of quite hard. So the way that I coped at university was to drink. So I drank loads. I put on about three stone in weight and that really affected my confidence. And I felt really crap about myself for like years and years until I lost weight. But it was the only way to really cope with the socialization and being in those kind of loud, noisy places. Now, I understand that. I understand myself. But at the time, it was like, it was the only way to cope was drinking too much. And that used to get me into trouble and to get myself, used to get myself into situations that weren't ideal. One other thing that I haven't mentioned so far is that I always had different boyfriends all the time. Not that I was promiscuous and, you know, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. But I just always had like a new boyfriend or some kind of love interest on the scene because it was fun and it was interesting. It was exciting and new. And I realized that, you know, if you've got ADHD, then that's what you thrive on. ADHD is actually kind of a, a lack of dopamine and that kind of those kind of feel good hormones, which is why a lot of ADHD is a kind of seeking excitement all the time and newness and new things. That's why I love traveling and I love new people, I think, because it gives you that kind of high, that kind of hit you get. So I always had like relationship things going on and things were on and off and there was this person and that person. And it was quite exhausting, even though I also managed to have quite a lot of long-term relationships as well. Also at university, I did everything at the last minute. I always did my essays right at the last minute, even though I had plenty of time to do them, which would cause me like a lot of stress. And another key thing was I was terrible with money. I just literally 
I just had no concept of it whatsoever. I would spend money knowing that I was going over my overdraft limit. I would, I don't know, pay for things on credit cards or whatever. And, and I would know that what I was doing was wrong, but it was like I couldn't, I couldn't seem to stop myself. So I actually left university with a lot more debt than I should have done. And I carried on sort of struggling with money probably right the way into my early, early 30s when I had a job as a teacher. I was always short at the end of the month. I actually had to take a second job on because I still had debts that I was paying off from, from university. And I've since learned that the ADHD brain has like two, it only has a kind of like now and not now. So whereas somebody who doesn't have ADHD might think to themselves, do you know what, I'm not going to buy that dress because I did that before I went over my overdraft limit and I got charged and that was painful, that caused problems for me. From what I understand that the ADHD brain doesn't work like that because of some of the problems with executive functioning and memory. It can't really do that and can't really go, oh, I did that before. That's not a good idea. That didn't work out well. It's just all about the now. So now I think I understand a little bit more because I, I used to beat myself up like, why am I like this? Why do I do this to myself? Why do I spend money that I haven't got? My parents used to get annoyed with me like, when I got married. Me and my husband, we used to fall out about it. But I just couldn't seem to stop myself. And it's really, really odd. That's changed as I've got older and I'll talk more about that later. But I was very, very impulsive with money and I felt very ashamed of myself for being like that because I couldn't understand why I was behaving. I, could, I just couldn't seem to stop myself. So career-wise, so we're now in my 20s. I was going to be a teacher. I w- I'd always planned I was going to train to be an English teacher. It was what always I kind of wanted to do. And then I had this car accident at the end of my second year of university. And that did actually, it was a really bad car accident. I was airlifted to hospital, should have died really. It was just really lucky. And that did kind of, it did kind of, it was traumatic and it took quite a lot, a lot of time to get over it. So I decided not to go straight to teach training college. So I did sort of like temporary jobs for a year in sales. And I tried doing sales in a publishing company, but I didn't like either of those. So I kind of I just kind of pulled out of those. So I went off to train as a teacher and I loved it at first. I liked being, I don't think I could ever do a job where you sit in an office like day in, day out. I've never done it and don't think I could ever do it. But you're kind of on your feet. Every day is different. It's quite interesting with kids. I worked with secondary school with teenagers. So that kind of suited me. But I overworked like massively. I started to feel really burnt out. I mean, teaching is really tough in terms of the workload, but also the kind of mental load as well. Like you're just on all day. You've got to prepare all of these lessons. You've got to be on dealing with these kids and their behavior. And then you have to go home and spend all evening like marking books and then getting ready for the next day. And I, I started to feel quite burnt out quite quickly. One of the things that I found really hard, a couple of things actually, was the timetable thing. So you would fill out your timetable when you you went back to school in September for the whole year. And I remember just always thinking, oh God, I hate the idea that I'm going to be in the same place at the same time, like every week for the next however long. And that lack of flexibility or sort of that sort of structure, I found it a bit oppressive and I felt a bit trapped by that, uh, which I now kind of realise is a kind of typical ADHD kind of response. But the other thing I really struggled with was paperwork. So as a teacher, you have lots of paperwork. And I remember I used to have this like plastic bag for life I used to carry. And I always had like far more stuff with me than I actually needed. I used to bring all this stuff to school and take it home, like thinking I was going to be able to get all this work done. And I couldn't. And I couldn't get a full set of books in. So as an English teacher, I had to give out, you know, like a whole set of Shakespeare books. And it just seemed like the most impossible task to actually give out a child a book, record the right number for the right child, and then get them all back in again. I was always in trouble 
of my head of department for not being able to get a full set of books back in or having recorded them wrong. My register was often wrong or incorrect. And obviously, you know, being able to do the register is quite important when you're a teacher. And the paperwork side of it, I just found it painful. I found it difficult. I was always getting stuff wrong. And so that is a sort of classic ADHD thing. But, you know, I struggle with that at work, but also in my home life as well. I never open any bills, uh, just have piles of papers that I needed to go through. I've still got it now. <laughs> piles of paper that I need to go through, like life stuff. So that was something that I struggled with a little bit. So I decided after three years to go off and retain training in journalism. I remember my dad, my mom and dad were like, why would you do that? You know, you've, you've qualified as a teacher. You were doing really well. I got a few promotions and stuff, but I was just burnt out. And I felt like I was working a lot harder than everybody else in order to get the same results. I was just working ridiculous, ridiculous hours and I was exhausted. So I went off and retrained in journalism and I decided to be freelance because I think I found the whole idea of working in an office and kind of having to sit with the same people like day in, day out. I just couldn't stand the thought of it. So being freelance really appealed to me because it was a lot more flexible and a lot more kind of changeable. You could control the situation yourself. So I was a freelance journalist. And actually, journalism really suited me for a number of reasons because with journalism, you just generally work in, while you might be managing multiple articles, particularly as a freelance journalist, but you generally work on one thing and then you get it done and you move on to the next thing. So that really, that really helps with procrastination and you often have a deadline. And because I was used to doing everything at the last minute, because I did that when I was at school, when I was at university, and I could still produce good work, even on the last minute, journalism, the kind of adrenaline and the excitement of it, it kind of worked for me because you'd have one article, you'd get that article finished, you'd do all the interviews, you'd do the research, you'd get it finished, then that was done, you'd move on to the next thing. What I noticed I found really hard is that people would commission me sometimes to do copywriting projects. So they might commission me, they might see my writing and like my writing and say, you know, could you do a series of like 20 case studies for us? That, that means that you'd have to interview you know, 10 different people and collect all their photos in and whatever. It's that kind of project that I used to get in a real muddle. I used to procrastinate about because it felt like there were too many moving parts to it. And that's a classic kind of ADHD thing, like struggling with detail. And it's weird because I was really good with detail. Obviously, when you're a journalist, you can't, you know, you have to make sure that all the details in your article are correct. But I could deal with getting all the detail right on one thing, on one article, like checking one article and checking that all the quotations were correct, that all the sources that were correct. And, you know, there was no chance that anybody could sue me or sue the paper. But dealing with like 20 different things at the same time, that was quite hard. I did work as an editor and I enjoyed it. So I used to stand in for the education editor, The Guardian. Sometimes I used to go in for like three or four weeks at a time sometimes when she took a sabbatical. I hated working in the office. Like I found the whole thing just really, I was like, how does anyone get work done in an office? Because I was used to working at home on my own. Like, How does anybody get any work done? It just felt like it was just constant interruptions. It was really difficult to concentrate. I found it really difficult to concentrate in an office environment. So what I would often do is I would get up really early at home, do all the editing at home, and then come into the office and then often I'd be working on my own stuff, my own freelance stuff during the day, having done all of the editing at like five o'clock in the morning or something, or I would be up doing it late at night, but I just couldn't concentrate with all of those people around me. I just found it so distracting. And there were people having conversations and people cooking like smelly food and someone would come over and ask you something and then that, or you'd have to go and speak to the photo desk or whatever. And I just found that the constant interruptions, I just felt like I just couldn't get anything done. And I remember my friend Phil meeting me for lunch after about I was at the end of a three-week stint at The Guardian. And he said to me, it's like somebody sucked the life out of you. <laughs> and that's exactly how I felt. Like just being in an office with the same people, like having to sit in the chair, like that same chair all the time. And, you know, any sort of like 
been able to get up and go to the loo or go to the... It was so weird. And obviously at home, I sit at home all the time, but I feel like I've got freedom. It was, it was, it was quite interesting. And I kind of fell into entrepreneurship. So people started to ask me for advice on how to get press coverage. So I started this blog, helping people to get press coverage. And that kind of got me interested in running an online business. So having started this blog and people were approaching me to help them with getting press coverage, I started to get interested in things like SEO and traffic and like working out how to get people to read my blog. And then I got interested in email marketing. And then suddenly I was into entrepreneurship and I decided that I wanted to move out of journalism and I wanted to run an online business. I started off teaching people about how to get press coverage because that was kind of what I knew. And I've gradually pivoted my business now to audience building. Being an entrepreneur really suits me because there is excitement. And one of the things I've always found when I've worked in an organization or a corporation is, is just a complete frustration because you have an idea and you can't do anything with it because you have to get people to agree it or you have to go through loads of red tape. And obviously being an entrepreneur, you have an idea, you can make it happen. And there's constant excitement, there's ups and downs, there's bad days and good days. But it's also the downside, obviously, for a workaholic is in some ways, it's like the worst thing you can possibly do because it's never finished. And you know, that's, I think, in the last five years or so, when I really started to notice some of these things that I'd experienced all of my life becoming a bit problematic when I became an entrepreneur because doing something that I really, really loved, it was really exciting and really stimulating, but also working far too hard at it. And that's, I think, when I started to think, actually, maybe there is something here. That's when I kind of started to suspect. But anyway, I've digressed a little bit. So I'm going to come back to teaching uh, journalism. That's kind of like my 20s into my 30s. I got married around or just before I was 30 and had my daughter when I was in my early 30s. And that's actually another point where I think when things really started to, I started to think, God, I really am different to people. Like what, what's going on here? So I've had quite a difficult time with becoming a mum. So I had miscarriage, had fertility problems, had an ectopic pregnancy, was diagnosed with a liver condition. So my early 30s, there was a lot kind of going on health-wise. And although I absolutely love my daughter and she was born really prematurely, which was really stressful, it was, it was so, so glad to have her with all the other problems that I've had. But I think becoming a mum really brought things home to me because my daughter was really sick. She was in hospital for three months, which was really tough. And then I got her home. I was so excited to get her home and she was tiny. She wasn't even five pounds and I don't think. But that's when I really started to feel that kind of lack of connection because being a mum was boring for me anyway. And everybody said it was going to be brilliant and I was going to love it so much. And I was like, this is really boring. It's really monotonous. And I kind of just want to break out of this. And so I kind of coped with it by working. So I was still working as a journalist then actually. And I used to, I got her into a sleep routine so that I could work at lunchtimes in the, and, and in the evening. And I would sort of try and, I was just, I was, I was just killing time all the time. Like, although I love my daughter and I love being her mum, but I didn't enjoy being a mum in particular. I just, I just thought, oh, this is so boring. And I wasn't interested in going to coffee mornings. And I would go and it was difficult because my daughter was born prematurely. I missed all the kind of NCT classes, but my health visitor put me in touch with the postnatal group. And I was just so bored. Everyone was talking about nappies and formula and weaning. And I was just like, this is just so boring. So I found myself just killing time and, you know, trying to organize activities to keep her busy in the morning. And then I would work at lunchtime. And that was kind of like my, I'd get her to sleep for two and a half hours at lunchtime. And that was kind of like my, you know, my time for me. And I'd work in the evenings as well. And that kind of kept me going, but I felt very isolated. And when my daughter started school, that was another kind of transition point because 
there were all these mums on the school playground and I, I really felt like I didn't have much in common with them. But I really tried to kind of be part of the group and I tried to get involved with some of the kind of PTA things and go around to people's houses for candle parties, whatever. But I just felt like an alien because deep down I wasn't interested in any of it. I wasn't interested in chatting about kids and phonics or whatever. I know. And I say this all like, I, I think I'm a good mum. I really love my daughter, but I just, just the whole thing. I was just like, this is so boring. The routines, the like, how are people finding this interesting? And that was when I really started to feel like an alien. And of course, one of the, you know, one of the symptoms on our realised ADHD is, you know, is about really struggling with things that you, you find boring and uninteresting. And when you become a mum and you're running a house and you're having to do washing and cleaning, and that's really when it all sort of came home to be. And don't get me wrong, I know that all of us, you know, none of us, I would say, really like those things. But I seem to be finding it more difficult to stay on top of things than other people. And yeah, it was just this kind of impending sense of boredom. And when I got married towards the end of my 20s and met my husband and we, we bought a house and we were doing it up, it was all really exciting. And again, that's quite an ADHD thing. It was new, it was exciting. So I enjoyed doing the house up and house projects. But by the time I got into my mid to late 30s, I was just I'm just not interested in the garden, not interested in... Then my husband would tease me about, we go to B&Q or we go to Ikea and like he'd have to bribe me because I just find it so boring <laughs> being in... And it just sound, it sounds so privileged, doesn't it? Like, oh, you know, I, I can't go to B&Q because it bores me. I don't want to look at tiles. I don't want to look at new kitchens. I, don't, I just want everything to, to be done. But that's genuinely how I, I started to feel. And I was like, you know, does everyone feel like this? I remember like walking down the garden and looking in my kitchen at the microwave and it's too high for me because I'm only five foot three but when we were planning our kitchen my husband suggested putting it there and I didn't take enough interest in the plants like I took a cursory interest in the kitchen plants because I found the whole thing really boring and just kind of left him to it and I think that's kind of been quite hard for him because you know I was when we first met I was quite excited and house stuff and DIY and and now it's work it's my daughter it's music I'm just back to those kind of things that I'm you know, those, those kind of key areas of, of hyper-focus, hyper they call it, for, for me. So my 40s, the decade that I'm in now, I think that's when I really started to think, I, I just really think my brain, well, I thought it all my life, I really think my brain doesn't work in the same way as other people. And the thing I really started to notice, and I think I'd noticed it before, but I really started to question it, was like, why don't I like holidays? I mean, I don't like going on holiday, I have to be really honest. I like traveling, I like traveling with work. I've been to Boston, I've been to Nashville, I've been to Berlin, various places speaking. I love that because it's exciting, it's new, you meet new people, you you don't know what's coming up. It's, it's an unexpected experience, it's exciting going on the plane, going to the airport, that kind of thing. But a holiday with the family, I actually just find that quite difficult because there's just all this time and I've got to fill it. And that's one thing I've always struggled with is, is filling time, it's feel, feeling like I need to be busy, like all of the time. So I I started to wonder like why is going on holiday painful for me because I feel on edge all the time when I'm on holiday. I feel on edge on a Saturday or a Sunday and I would be working to like numb out. I'd be working all the time because that's probably that was probably easier than kind of facing up to the fact that I wasn't enjoying doing things. And I did wonder if I was depressed, anxious and you know as part of my assessment of ADHD I, I had all of those tests as well and my gut feeling was that I wasn't. But this complete sort of lack of, you know, feeling almost like if I wasn't working, then I wasn't happy. That's the kind of best way to describe it, I guess. And that was really what 
led me this kind of mental restlessness. It's just feeling like I just can't switch off. I just can't calm down. My mind's working overtime all the time. I literally feel like I can't enjoy anything that isn't work. And the only time I can switch off is when I'm exercising. So that was really what led me to start looking into this. And when I sat down with the doctor who did the assessment, I did all the tests beforehand and we got about 20 minutes in and she she looked at my school reports, she looked at all my stuff and she's like, well, yeah, you know, I think you've definitely got it. It's just really a case of, of how we treat it. And it was a shock really. And to think, you know, I've been struggling with all of these things for the whole of my life, just thinking that they were personality quirks. And I guess you might have got this far if you have got this far listening to it because I've gone into quite a lot of detail. And you might think, well, I recognize all of these things that you're saying. Like I said at the beginning, I think it's about the frequency with which they happen and how much they affect your life. It may well be that you feel all of these things and have experienced all of these things, but it's not affected your life. But for me, it was feeling like, why can't I enjoy a day off or a holiday? Or why can't I just switch this brain off? Like, why am I only interested in this very, very small range of things? Work, my daughter, running, music. Why can't I extend my interest to to anything else? So, That's given you a much more detailed overview. I'm just going to talk a little bit about some of the strategies I think I've kind of inadvertently employed over the years without knowing I was doing it. So work-wise, I've just lent into my zone of genius. My thing is writing and communication. I totally know that. So I try and outsource everything in my business, anything to do with numbers or finance. I make a lot of mistakes with numbers and dates, as my team will tell you. So I just try and outsource anything that's not in my superpower. The thing I'm best at is writing, communicating, talking to people, teaching. So I just try and stick to that. In terms of my systems, I actually inadvertently realized something about myself a few years ago is that I work much better in the morning. I'm a morning person. So I've structured my day so I keep my mornings completely free till 12 o'clock so I can get big things done. You might have heard me talk about this before on the podcast. So I get up at five and by 12 o'clock, I've often got quite a lot done, but I've had to take this deliberate decision. Not I don't do any coaching. I don't do any consultancy. All of that happens in the afternoon. I've struggled actually falling asleep in the afternoon. I'm going to talk about that in just a sec, but that's worked with me in terms of getting stuff done. Life-wise, oh my God, I just kind of bumble along. I still forget to pay stuff all the time. I get fined probably practically every month for not paying my phone bill. It's terrible. And I've got the money. Money-wise, because I earn more money now, I don't have any debt and I don't have any problems, but I'm hyper aware that if I was, my income was to drop, you know, I still, I walk into the supermarket and I just get so overwhelmed (laughs) that I'll go in for something that's like a fiver and I will have a list with me. But I will come out with £50 worth of stuff because it's just, I'm still a very impulsive spender. I get overwhelmed by lots of choice. And so my husband actually does all of the shopping and all of the cooking. I hate cooking. So my husband does all of that and I wash up. So I kind of think that we've, we just kind of inadvertently kind of developed a lot of coping strategies. But I have to say, you know, that I've been really successful. I think, I say really successful, but I've had some really good successes in my business, but also as a journalist as well. I won lots of awards when I was a journalist. I think I was a really good journalist and a writer. So this ability to hyper-focus and just to kind of really, I mean, I get quite obsessed with things and that's been good, good. You know, I get obsessed and with, with getting things perfect and getting them right. And I think that's one of the things which has helped me to become a good writer. It helped me to become a good journalist. Things like podcasting, I and once I start doing something, I'm quite obsessive about it. So I think that's really helped me to, I've now published well over 410 podcast episodes, I think. 
I've shown up every week. I haven't missed any. I I send a daily email to my list. So that kind of compulsive, hyper-focused side of me can be a massive strength because when I get into something, I tend to get really good at it because I just block everything else out and I just really, really focus on it. So I think that part of ADHD has been absolutely uh, brilliant for me. In terms of friendships, I think that's an area that I still need to work on big time. And actually, as I've been starting to do my research, I think that's an area that I think I can really kind of, I've lost touch with a lot of people because maybe I've been a bit crap and I've forgotten to go back to them. And then it gets awkward because it's been too long. But I've been reading some books about that and how to kind of reconnect with people. And I think that's something that I think I need to work on a little bit. And I think I've probably accepted that it's okay, you know, to only have a few things that you're interested in. And I just try, I try not to beat myself up about not being interested in gardening or housework or, you know, I outsource my ironing. I do my own cleaning because I've got a routine that I can follow to do it. But I get very overwhelmed by clearing cupboards out or clearing spaces out. Like, oh, my daughter's bedroom just does my head in. I can't cope with it at all because I just don't know where to start because it just feels like too big, too much of a task. And for example, I've developed little strategies. Like one thing I find really hard is if I've got a really boring task to do, like paying everyone in my team. I find that so painfully boring that I ask them to submit all their invoices together and I nag them until they do it and I sit and do them all at once. I've started using a resource called Focusmate actually, which has been brilliant. It's a tool that you can use. I'll link to it in the show notes where you basically buddy up with somebody. It's kind of a bit weird at first because it's like being on a Zoom call with somebody, but you book in a session, you work for 15 minutes with somebody else and you introduce yourself at the start, um, you say what you're going to do in that session, they do the same, and then you just get on and do it. It's kind of weird at first, because there's someone kind of watching you while you work, but it's so good, because you've got that accountability, and you can't just kind of drift off and start like messing around on Facebook or whatever. You have to kind of get on with it. So I have to say, I'm kind of a early days in learning about myself and learning about how it's affected me. So I think I will record another episode six months, a year down the line, talking a little bit more about what I've learned of what I've managed to put into practice. My doctor did prescribe medication and I am trying that. And it's early days, but actually it seems to be pretty good, but it feels too early for me to to kind of say. So I feel like I've gone into a lot of detail there and it is really difficult to describe some of these things. And I'm imagining that some of this stuff you'll be like, well, what? You think that's ADHD? because you experience it too. But like I say, it is about the frequency and how much it affects your life. So one of the questions I've been asked a lot is like, well, what do I do if I think I've got ADHD? So I'm no expert on this, even though I have read quite quite extensively. What I did is I went to see my GP, which I found very awkward and embarrassing. They didn't really seem to know much about it. But I asked for a referral letter. I chose to get a private referral because I knew there would be a massive wait list and I knew I wouldn't be a priority as a kind of, you know, functioning person who wasn't like getting herself into trouble or anything. And I looked very carefully for somebody who had worked in the NHS. So somebody who'd worked in the kind of public healthcare system, somebody who, you know, had written papers and was on the boards of the relevant organizations or whatever. So I did I probably paid more to go with somebody who I felt had kind of had the credentials. So I know that's a route that might not be available to everybody. I'm very lucky to be able to do that. But I think if you can do that, then it's definitely worth going down that route if it is causing you difficulties. Some really useful resources, I'll share share these in the the show notes as well. So Tracy Otsuka has a podcast and a Facebook group, ADHD for Smart-Ass Women. Both are brilliant. Listening to the podcast, being in the group, I'm not particularly active in the group. I I don't think I've ever actually posted. 
But I found that a really, really useful resource. And just to make me feel a bit more normal, because I think when you've got all this stuff going through your head for years and years, and you just think you're such a terrible, flawed person because you can't remember people's birthdays or you forget to buy your friends. Like I forgot to buy my friend's son a birthday present, but I bought one for her daughter, but not her son. And I realized how that could be so hurtful for her. It just, it just didn't really occur to me. But just kind of that reassurance that that you're not a bad person or a terrible person and there's other people who feel like you. Another brilliant YouTube channel, How to ADHD with Jessica McCabe, a really, really useful resource. Lots of great videos on different, that have helped me to understand different aspects of, uh, quite complex aspects of ADHD. And that's a, a really good one as well. And some books, a Radical Guide for Women with ADHD by Sari Solden. That one was brilliant. That was another resource I read where I kind of, I was actually listening to it on Audible and I kind of was welling up as I was listening to it because so much of it was so familiar. And then Taking Charge of Adult ADHD with Russell Barkley. So I feel like I've, <laughs> this is one of the longest episodes I've ever recorded solo episodes and I feel like I might have been rambling and going off on various tangents or whatever. So I hope you're still with me. That's a trait of ADHD, by the way, going off on, you know, forgetting what you you already said and and, and losing your thread. But I hope you've found it useful or insightful. I hope it's helped you maybe to understand yourself a little bit better or maybe somebody that you love a little bit better. And I'm very conscious that some of the things that I described, they might sound a little bit vague. I mean, I spent weeks worrying after I got my diagnosis that maybe somehow I'd skewed the tests, that I'd read all this stuff and then I just ticked all the right boxes or whatever. But I guess that's probably another symptom of ADHD. That could be a reduction sensitivity dysphoria at play and that kind of extreme sensitivity at play. But I hope it's been useful. I hope it's given you a bit of an insight into me and I hope in sharing it that it kind of helps some way, even if it's just a case of kind of maybe not feeling so alone in any feelings that you have that make you feel separate or alien from other people. Because I have to say, it's been quite therapeutic sharing some of these things that I've internalized for many years and some of these like thoughts that I've had about myself that, you know, I'm a terrible person. Like, why can't I get organized? Why do I lose things all the time? Why am I a terrible friend? Like, why do I forget people's birthdays? Like, why do I get hyper-focused on a particular task or a hobby and just ignore everybody? Why am I a bad daughter? Why am I a bad wife? Just actually talking about this stuff has been a massive help. So if nothing else, I hope it may have encouraged you to feel less alone if you have some of those thoughts and feelings. So I said I'd finish up with an update. So I recorded that episode in July 2020. I'm recording this one in September 2021. Since then, I've been taking medication regularly for ADHD. Hands up, I was terrified. I thought I was going to have all of these awful side effects and it was going to send me crazy. But thankfully, that's not been the case. People often talk about ADHD medication as it's like somebody's turned the lights on for you. And that is exactly how it feels for me. I did worry about side effects. When you're taking stimulant medication, one of the side effects can be loss of appetite and weight loss. For the first time in my life, I was having to think about putting on weight or certainly making sure I didn't lose any more. But once I got used to the medication, that's kind of settled down. The other one was um, a dry mouth, but that's easily fixed with water and chewing gum helps as well with that. But overall, it's been great. It's really hard to describe how different you feel when your mind is clear and calm. 
One area where I really noticed it was driving. I'm not somebody, thankfully, that's ever suffered with mental health issues like depression or anxiety, but I did sometimes get very anxious when I was driving. I had a very bad car accident a long time ago, but it was a really bad accident and I was still quite a nervous driver. When I was motorway driving, I would sometimes find that I would suddenly just be gripped by panic. I'd be like, I'm going so fast. What if I can't stop? What if I crash into someone? The number of times I've almost turned off, left the car and got the train home. (laughs) But that has really calmed down. And I can only think that it's something to do with my brain being calmer. The thing I've always found really challenging about driving, I had to take three tests. I had so many lessons was there just so many things to think about at once. And I found it really overwhelming, really stressful learning to drive. And even though that followed having a serious accent, I feel like I probably would have been like that anyway. It just felt so overwhelming. And certainly I have been much happier driving on the motorway and have not had any of those episodes that I was actually having quite regularly. I've been able to make some big decisions in my business, which may or may not be due to feeling more clear-headed I think the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur, but particularly being an entrepreneur with ADHD, is that constant struggle just to focus on one thing because your mind wants you to be doing a million things and getting excited and having new ideas all the time. But I made a big decision this year to, well, first of all, to finish my old podcast, but also to focus just on one product. So I was previously running my Build Your Online Audience membership and selling my planner and my planner membership that went with it. And that's just too much for one person, even with a, a team. So I made the brave decision just to focus on my planner and my planner membership. And that's what I'm going to be doing going forward. And certainly I felt more focus and clarity around doing less. That's really been my theme for this year, which leads on to a couple of other things. So one thing I've really learned about myself in the last year, and as I've learned more about ADHD, is how much I was almost trying to compensate for what I saw as my deficiencies. So I saw myself as not being as organized as other people, as somebody who always did things on the last minute, somebody who was a bit forgetful. And I think I would dwell on that so much. I would forget about the great qualities that I do have. I had a personal situation that that happened this year, which really brought that to light, where I had a falling out with someone. It was quite a big falling out. And it was it was a real, it was really difficult for me because I'm not a somebody who typically gets into conflict with people. But when I reflected back on this situation, which was very upsetting and it really escalated very quickly, I realised that it all started for me when the person involved suggested that I wasn't doing what I should be doing, or certainly I felt that that's what they were suggesting. And instead of saying, well, no, actually, I am delivering exactly what I said I would deliver, I was really clear in what I would and wouldn't do and what I could and couldn't do. I kind of took it to heart and I started to people please and I started to do more like, look, I am really valuable. It was almost like I had to prove my value and my worth. And look, I've got all of these skills and okay, I'm not the most organized person in the world, but I'm really creative and clever and I can do all of these things. I was just doing more and more and more and more. And the person involved still wasn't happy. And when I reflected on that situation, it was a pattern. I think that's happened over and over in my life. It's almost like I'm trying to make up for the fact that I think I'm not as organized and more chaotic than other people and trying to apologize. And certainly I've noticed it with my team as well. I've become a lot less apologetic about me and the way that I work and a lot more. Well, look, you know, 
I appreciate that you may want to work with somebody who works in this way, but this is how I work. And if you are happy to work that way, great. If you're not, there's other people and other businesses that you could work for if that suits you better. Another interesting thing that's come up is my daughter is now being assessed as well. So no classic symptoms there at all. I just noticed a change in how she was doing at school. And I got in touch and said, this might sound a bit silly, but I've just noticed that there's a bit of a gap between what I think she could achieve and what she is producing in an exam situation. And there's been a change from when she was younger. They said, no, we don't think you, you're being silly at all. And they did some testing on her and it, it highlighted some auditory processing issues, which means that she's now going to be tested as well, because that's actually quite common in ADHD. In fact, it could be that some of the challenges I had at school, particularly around maths, and I think I talked about music theory as well, maybe it's the same for me. So she's now going through the process of being tested. And it's interesting because no classic symptoms there, apart from being really untidy, and lots of teenagers are really untidy. So will be interesting to see the outcome of that. Finally, I just wanted to share that I question the diagnosis every single day and think, am I making this up? I, I feel like my closest family and friends probably think I am because I seem like quite a together person on the surface. I find myself questioning whether I've made the, the whole thing up and maybe I'm just making excuses for being a deficient person. But the title of this podcast is how I discovered I had ADHD and why I think it's my superpower. And I hope this episode has demonstrated how, although it brings challenges, it also brings many strengths as well. I get asked a lot in my DMs, how do I get a diagnosis? I'm not an expert and I don't feel qualified to give advice. But what I would say, regardless of the circumstances, is your first port of call is likely to be your, your GP, your general practitioner, or, or whoever your first point of contact is in medical terms, whatever country you happen to be in, in the UK, it's your GP, your general practitioner, so you can get a referral letter. In the UK, there is a long wait list for adult ADHD assessments. If you can find the budget, certainly going private will speed things up. I have heard that there is a a way of getting a free assessment via an organisation called UK Psychiatry, I think it is, but I'm not an expert, so you will need to look into that yourself. So I hope that's been helpful. Depending on what happens over the next 12 months, I may well give you an update next year. Would you like to create super engaging content about your business and do it consistently? If so, you need my Courageous Content Planner in your life. It's a gorgeous A4 desk diary that's so simple to use because it's based on my 4x4 strategy, which involves posting four styles of content four days a week. Yes, content planning really can be that easy. There's templates for daily, weekly, monthly, and annual planning, so you know exactly what to post, where and when, plus hundreds of ready-to-go content ideas and prompts. So you'll never run out of ideas for social media posts again. And accountability trackers to keep you consistent with your posting. The Courageous Content Planner is both practical and pretty, with four gorgeous cover designs to choose from. So if you want to ditch the content overwhelm and you want a simple content plan you can actually stick to, head over to CourageousContentPlanner.com to order your copy today. Thanks for listening to the Courageous Content Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share the episode on social media. 
That way, more people can benefit from the free tips and strategies I share. And be sure to tag me in when you do. I'm at Jan Marie on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. 